Welcome to episode 151 of No Challenges Remaining. I'm Ben Rothenberg, joined by my dear friend Courtney Nguyen. Hi, Courtney. How are you? Hello, Ben. I'm fine. How are you doing? I'm super. This is our last stateside show before we head over to Europe for a long sojourn there, which may or may not have musical interludes, as we're discussing. <laughs> uh, how are you How are you feeling ready to set off across the Great Blue Sea? Yeah, I think so. Um, it's come... Fairly... I said, how are you feeling? And you said, I think so. Sorry, I thought I thought that you said, <laughs> I apologize. Okay. Clearly, I'm not, okay? Um, because my brain is not working. No, I, I thought I was ready. Um, and I definitely w- felt ready maybe like a week ago or a week mm-hmm. and a half ago, even though I was like on vacation. But right before I was about to go on vacation, I was like kind of feeling the traveling bug a little bit and was ready to get back on the road. Um but then since getting back, it's felt like it's come awfully quick. So yeah. um, I don't know when you're leaving. I'm leaving on Wednesday. Um, so it's it's a pretty quick turnaround, and I need to get a bunch of work done and pack. And You're leaving Wednesday? I'm leaving Wednesday. I get the, I get into Madrid on Thursday morning. Oh, wow. So that's way before the tournament then. Well, the, the draw's on Friday. Okay. Still. And then okay. all access and all that. So Right. Okay. I get there Saturday, which I think is the first day of play. Right. Yeah. Um, all access. So... Saturday, so. It's, yep. Okay. So um, that'll work. Yeah. So I'm just getting in early and doing all that. And it'll be obviously a very long trip because I think you and I are going to be, well, you're going to be in Europe, I think, for quite a long time, it sounds like. Mm-hmm. Um, and then all the way through Wimbledon. Yeah. All the way through Wimbledon. And I will be there uh, theoretically as of right now for maybe like a week and a half after the, after the French Open, maybe okay. a week after the French Open. So yeah, trying to pack for all that. It's just weird. It's a lot of it's complicated. Too. I'm going to get very sick of all the clothes I bring pretty quickly. I'm trying to bring just one bag. And it's That's like tough. the weirdest thing. I don't know about you, Ben, because I'm not going to sit here and judge your fashion choices. Thank you. Um, Which you already did today on Twitter. <laughs> I right. did. Your suit looks so bad, man. Look you bad. look it so looks, small. Looks... You look like you're wearing your pop suit. <laughs> no, no, I don't. Do, I'm, just, I'm just wasting away. Anyway. In case you guys don't know, Ben's going to be on Jeopardy and he wears yep. a suit. And I don't know. You tell me. It looks a little big. That's all I'm saying. Okay. Um, but no, Wait, like what you think it looked big when you thought I was wearing football pads. Yeah, I thought that would mean I was really, like, bursting at the seams. You look you really need to, short. You need to get your like insults straight. This is these are you're mixing messages here. No, no, no. You look very shoulder patty. You look very ease okay. like power suit female executive shoulder patty. <laughs> well, I was I was on Jeopardy to lean in, so that, that's what I wanted to accomplish. And I respect that. I respect that. You know, you're a feminist, and I appreciate it. Yeah. Um. Yeah, so so but yeah, packing that is the biggest stressor for me, not about packing, but about trying to figure out a combination of clothing that I'm not going to like hate a week and a half into the trip because it's going to be like a 6-week trip. So, you got to be things that you're gonna be happy to wear 3 times. Happy to wear 3 times, easy to wash, goes with every, you know, like yeah, the exactly. worst the worst packing situation is when you pack stuff and you don't think about it. And then you get to the to wherever you're going, you unpack, and then you realize that like a bunch of stuff doesn't go together. Mm-hmm. And then it's it's very it stresses me out. I'm mm-hmm. not saying that I put a lot of thought into like what I wear every day, as everybody who's seen me on site knows. But <laughs> I have personal pride. <laughs> it's still an intentional look. <laughs> so w- w- whatever we are wearing now, we will be discussing. A few things happened this week 
in tennis, off-court things, I guess. We're going to talk about Rafael Nadal filing a lawsuit against Rosalind Bachelot for defamation in Paris on Monday. And we'll talk about Serena Williams, who the night before on HBO was doing things next to Beyonce in the Lemonade <laughs> visual album, which got a lot of people excited, other people uh, somewhat dismayed. So we will talk about that. And we'll take questions. And we'll rant rave. It'll be fun. Ready? Play. Us. Your line, your show. Um, Rosalind Bachelot said some things about Rafael Nadal during the Indian Wells tournament, uh, which we did not talk about that much there. I guess maybe we did talk a bit on the roundtable. Maybe we mentioned it. Uh, Rosalind Bachelot is a former minister of sport, among other things, in France. Uh, so like a cabinet-level person, so a pretty high-level person, even if has not stepped down. And she was on a talk show, Le Grand Huit, talking about... Uh, the Sharapova news that had come out just then. And she launched into this sort of rant about how it was clear that tennis had a problem with these things because everyone knew that, you know, there was a code of silence and that Rafael Nadal had clearly been serving a silent ban of some sort when he had missed seven months of the tour back. And she was referring to the seven months he missed in 2012 and 2013, uh, which started at the started after Wimbledon, after he lost to Russell at uh, Miss Olympics, Miss US Open, then went on to Miss the Australian Open. So she was saying that, and it came, was in response to that. Apparently, Rafa had heard about it during these roundtables when he was asked about Sharapova, and that's why he seemed, I don't know, a bit more worked up, I heard later. Uh, but he, I guess the rest of the uh, media, the quotes didn't trickle out of France until later. And he said then, in his first press conference when he was asked about it, that he was going to sue Bachelot. And today, that suit was filed. So, Courtney, I guess, what are your initial reactions to this, this story? And you're a lawyer, obviously. You're not a specialist in French defamation law, I realize. But what are your <laughs> what are your thoughts on this case and I guess, about the sort of way it's gone down so far? Well, I mean, I think that you can understand where Rafael Nadal is coming from. I think that when, you, when you are a professional athlete, especially one that is of his stature in terms of just uh, his, his position in the game and everything that he's accomplished on his resume, like – there is no worse allegation or set of whispers around a professional athlete than doping. Um, and I think that that's why, you know, uh, athletes are, are, I mean, obviously so aware of it. I mean, it's the ultimate in, in undercutting your, your credibility in undermining your records. Um, and if you allow those sorts of whispers to continue over time, they can snowball and, you know, things get, totally out of control. So I understand, obviously, Rafa being incredibly uh, perturbed by a, sorry, is she former government official or current? She's former, right? Okay. So a former government official in France um, saying these things so like adamantly. Declaratively. Yeah. The weird thing about it. Yeah. I found that to be quite shocking. You know, I mean, I I don't know what the defamation rules are in France, um, uh, slander and all that, but I would presume that, that, you know, you can't just go around throwing stuff, throwing words uh, and that you have to actually have some proof and it's not completely speculation and, and things like that. It's the same, you know, rules that I think apply to all of us as as reporters, as journalists, as writers, people who cover the sport that, you know, people say things, you hear whispers, you hear uh, just general, you know, things, things that are so outlandish that like literally I've had, you know, uh, players, players, parents uh, player entourage people being like, oh, well, you know, da 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 da. And I'm like, yeah, that sounds kind of cockamamie, this story that you're trying to sell to me, like right now. Mm-hmm. That sounds like sour grapes. 
But so you obviously hear it and, and it's all part of the conversation. You don't air every single, well, this person thinks this and this person thinks that. And obviously this is happening. Like, no, you actually do have to do your homework and investigate and and try and 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 get some hard, hard proof. And when the stakes are so high with something like this with doping, you better be right. Exactly. And that's the, mean, thing. That's it, the it thing. It just seemed you can't be it just seemed so sloppy unless she unless she has some trove of information, which the rest of the world is not privy to, which I don't think there's any indication that she does at this point. Yeah. Going out and saying these things this confidently in this accusatory way um, does deserve that does fit does seem like a pretty textbook case of defamation or of slander or of something, you know, bringing someone's character into ill repute without um, proof or without right. the truth I mean, on your side. Truth is and, truth is a defense, typically yeah. to defamation, slander, and libel. So, you know, she's going to have to show her receipts. She's going to have to sit there and be like, here's the proof that I have. And if she doesn't, you know, this was an incredibly irresponsible thing for her to do. Um, and, you know, Rafa has every right to go after her. Now, she has, you know, like you said, a treasure trove of information, then so be it. But I... I'd be I'd be pretty shocked if if that were the case. That would be interesting. And so here's just a, I'll read a bit from Rafa's statement today. He says, through this case, I intend not only to defend my integrity and my image as an athlete, but also the values I've defended in all my career. Uh, I also I also wish to avoid any public figure from making insulting or false allegations against an athlete using the media without any evidence or foundation and to go unpunished. So I guess I guess that is part of what I'm going to get to next. It's just a sort of. This is not the first time I read about when I wrote about the story for the times back when specialist things happened. This is not the first time that people have said things directly or indirectly trying to implicate or accuse or, you know, spread whispers about Nadal or other top players. And this yeah, is I was going to say not just Rafa. I mean, no, not just any Rafa. other I mean, players. We know the players who, who are the usual suspects, quote unquote, in this situation. It's not Justin, but he is obviously one of them. What I guess do you think that it is fair ever for people to trade in this sort of stuff or i guess how, how should and i guess there's probably different standards for different people i guess maybe where the answer to this is i would think is you know this the bar might be higher for someone like a bachelor than for anonymous twitter egg but um that everybody should be have a degree of carefulness about it well but that i think that that goes into kind of like broader uh issues of just personal responsibility mm-hmm you know, I mean, we can even tie this into, you know, what what happened with Caroline Garcia a couple years, a couple weeks ago yeah. in Charleston with respect to to a completely false uh, accusation that she she made a, a slanderous, racist uh, comment on court during one of her matches that proved to be, you know, unfounded completely. Completely. Yeah. Um, by any. Which is my which is my rave rant that week. Right, yeah, exactly. And. You know, I think that, again, it's one of those situations where, you know, you had people who were on the Internet, you know, who may be those eggs, you know, who may be like the empty, you know, like whatever. But these things happen. And once, you know, these rumors get spread, even from a small, you're just a single human being. But now with Twitter and social media, everything can get just go viral very, very quickly. And people can be on the Internet, shocker, incredibly irresponsible with respect to fact checking and also very careless in terms of just not recognizing that these are human beings whose reputations are on the line, whose, um, yeah. And, and so, you know, it, it, it's not just about this like doping and rough and like whatever. I mean, it's just a broader situation. I mean, I think Ben and I talk about this all the time, obviously being within tennis, we hear a lot of things and, and Mm -hmm. you, um, about a bunch of different issues. Um, but 
do you go and run and broadcast every single thing without knowing whether or not it's true or not? No, you never would. And that to me is not necessarily like a rule that only applies to like journalists. Like I just, I don't know, like the power, we've seen the power of Twitter. We've seen the power of social media. You put something out there, it can go big very quickly. And you have a lot of countries who have very different standards with respect to how they do reporting who take these, you know, unfounded things and run with them and treat them as fact. And, you know, so I absolutely understand from the player perspective, wanting to try and curb that and, and nip it in the bud on, on the front end. I probably am, am, I think that you might, and I have discussed this offline, like I'm far more conservative with respect to the things that I report than maybe others. I don't know, but like, I just, I, I really have to know that I'm dead to rights. Correct. And and um, right. And and at the same time, I have to say, like, that's changed over the course of my quote unquote involvement in tennis. Like, I think that when I first started and I was just like a tweeter and a blogger at 40 Deuce, I was probably way more reckless. I absolutely was way more reckless with what I said and, um, you know, cracking jokes that I thought people understood as jokes, but people didn't take them as jokes, whatever. But I was like, I didn't really think about it. As time has gone on and as you recognize that, like, people are listening and people do hear what you're saying, you know, you're, uh, I'm far more scrupulous, scrupulous about, you know, what comes out of my mouth. Yeah, that's fair. And I guess I guess one way to segue to that was something that happened a couple weeks ago uh, after the tail end of the Monte Carlo tournament, which we didn't talk about, which was Andy Murray's comments about uh, suspicions of doping uh, in tennis, which were widely uh, not by him, obviously, a tribu- you know, thought to be talking about specific players when he basically said, um, here's a quote. Uh, he said, I have played against players and thought they don't seem to be getting tired. Have they ever been suspicious of someone? Yeah, you hear things. And I think that, that the way that Murray said it, again, not naming names, is much more fair and cautious. It's, it's obviously, he doesn't have to have, even if people can guess who they think he might be talking about, he, he doesn't have to have the same sort of receipts to say something like that. And it was uh, what I thought was a fairly honest and revealing comment and not surprising. I mean, he, we play in an era of, uh, you know, sport where everyone, where there's superhuman things happening on court all the time. Yeah. Or I guess. Yeah. yeah. It's hard because we do live in, as I, you know, not that I'm the one that came up with this. I was about to say, as I say, but that's not true. Um, But we live in a, in a post Lance Armstrong world Um, and not just Lance, but you know, in America, Sammy Sosa, Mark McGuire, Marion Jones, Jones, you know, like we live in a world where we had this golden, you know, kind of 10 years where you saw ridiculous things happening and you could buy into it. Like you could earnestly be like, oh my God, like humans are amazing. This guy. Look at McGuire go. Yeah, exactly. And like McGuire and Sosa and that home run, you know, uh, uh, basically derby over the course of a full season saved baseball. Oh, yeah. You know, I mean, it was coming out of a strike and nobody cared about baseball. And then McGuire and Sosa, who were, as we now know, were juicing, were hitting home runs left and right. And it was fun as hell to watch. And it made baseball relevant again. So it weirdly saved the sport. Um, I'm not defending it. I'm just giving context. Um, no, it's, it's true. It's true. Though. I mean, like even in in, uh, in women's track, Marion Jones is the biggest, you know, definitely American star in women's track and field we've had in the last 20 years. And America you probably don't really give a crap about cycling except for the fact that Lance Armstrong was dominant because we like winners. And right. so it was and like, he had his whole backstory and everything. And his yeah. whole backstory and live strong and all that sort of stuff. So you had this era where like, yeah, it, it, there was an innocence about it and you saw things happen in sports and 
you were just like, ah, oh, it's, it's amazing. Humans are awesome. We don't have the luxury of, of that innocence anymore. No. And I think that, you know, obviously, you know, as sports writers and as people who watch, you know, tons of sports, you see things and every single time you see something amazing happen, there is that little voice in the back of your head that says, boy, I, I, I just, I really, you know, like that, that sometimes can temper how big you go with like the myth-making narrative that, especially, is, so, yeah. that is so tempting especially to when write. It, especially when it's something that it does seem to be like purely on the physical scale. You know, it's one thing, like, I don't think anybody is saying like, wow, look at that incredible drop shot, you know. <laughs> But when somebody says, literally, wow, they no one says they, that. <laughs> that drop shot unless, of or, unless, or, unless Laura Siegemund is hitting him. Yes, that's the only exception. But if you guys didn't watch the final, she was amazing. Um, actually, no, semifinals against Aga Radvanska. She like no reason. I think those were unclean drop shots, Courtney. I'm just no. I'm I'm saying they were beautiful and they were amazing, and I like bow down to them. And I don't for a sp- split second think that they are unclean in any way, shape or form. Yeah. So but but I'm just I mean, obviously, people know the sorts of things that raise eyebrows now, whether it's, you know, endurance, recovery, whatever. Um, and those things doing those are things we're you know vigilant about in tennis media for whoever thinks we have a problem uh, in that area. I think people are on the lookout for sure and, and jaded in a way they haven't been before. Um, yeah, it sucks. But yeah, it's, it's not fun. Yeah. But it is the reality of the thing. It's and like, so for Andy Murray to to be thinking along those lines at all is not surprising. No, and it's to the point where even last week, uh, Ben and I were going to talk about Andy's comments. And there was about a 30-minute delay to our discussion because I could have sworn that he had said that before. I was convinced that these comments were not new, that Andy's actually said this in the past at some point. And I mm-hmm. went through this whole Google search and didn't find what I was thinking. But that's how kind of... I don't know, either common it is or just that I just know where Andy stands on this issue, that it just felt like I'd heard it before or something. Mm-hmm. I don't know. But anyways. Yeah. Anyways, indeed. We'll make a, a clumsy transition now to Serena Williams, who is uh, breaking out of the tennis bubble. She was on HSN earlier this week, which is always a treat, although I missed it, but I'm sure it was delightful. Um, she was on ABC for something as well. And then she was on HBO as part of the visual album, um, which everyone just tossed around like it was a term that existed before. But <laughs> it, it, it hadn't. Uh, with, uh, I guess not before the last Beyonce. Beyonce's Lemonade album came out and Serena Williams is in track number four. Sorry. Explain, Courtney, what because you, you were, I think, the first one I saw on Twitter who really immediately picked up on the uh, iconography of it, which is uh, a yeah. Beyonce term. Well, I mean... I adore Beyonce. I don't listen to Beyonce. I think I need to like kind of like draw that line. Like in other words, I absolutely respect and worship like the thing that she is and the art and the artist that she is now. Like I I respect like what she's done, particularly over the last like two or three albums, but it's not my type of music. I don't generally turn it on to listen to. But when she does a thing, I'll tune in. Um, So, yeah, so I was kind of doing a bunch of different things on my computer, watching some tennis, um, watching other sports, doing some work and tuned into the HBO special, not knowing what it was. And sure enough, it was the lemonade, uh, the debut of the album, which was unannounced. And I don't know how she keeps this stuff secret. Well, I mean, they knew that they knew that it was going to be, she's going to have an HBO thing. So I mean, yeah, this the one HBO was more telegraphed than before. But it wasn't, I mean, people kind of suspected, but it could have been like a bunch of different things. You know what I mean? Like a live concert or, yeah, but um, but yeah, no one really knew that this album was coming out. 
So I was just kind of watching and it was really interesting. A lot of really cool visual things, a lot of poetry, a lot of, a lot of statements, a lot of emotions. A lot of coming for Jay-Z. A lot of coming for Jay-Z and, and Becky with the good hair. Um, AKA Rachel Ray. <laughs> AKA the queen of microwaves, Rachel Ray. Um, but Rachel Which you have been so delighted by. Like, you so like you're downplaying this, but I've heard like, I've gotten at least like 15 <laughs> messages from you today about, out, about with like photos of Rachel Ray doing sexy cooking. And it's like, <laughs> what even is this part of the internet? I, I don't even know. It's a deep, deep, dark place that I went to today to try and source this whole Rachel Ray stuff. Um, but yeah, so on the track, I was just kind of watching. It's a black and white song. And then I was like, <gasps> Serena. And it's more than a camera you guys like um i highly recommend that you you try and track it down if you can but it's serena uh doing a lot of twerking a lot of dancing a lot of walking around in what looks like a kind of a onesie leotard uh that's a bit mesh and looks very similar to the one that she wore on the cover of the sportsman of the year um issue sports person sports person of the year i apologize uh where she sits on the throne uh, for Sports Illustrated. And so in the video, it's kind of dope because it's Beyonce who's mimicking Serena's pose from the SI cover and Beyonce's kind of dancing around. And it's a very, it's a song, it's called Sorry, but actually the whole uh, song is a big F you. Um, I'm not sorry is basically the, the line that Beyonce sings quite a bit, um, encourages people to throw their middle fingers up in the air, um, tell tell the the cheating boys to hit the road. All those sorts of things. So, so yeah, it was cool. I was super excited, and I just loved watching Twitter kind of blow up about it because I think that, like, right now, especially particularly in the states, those two are like the queens, you know, like of like just uh, in pop culture when people think of like just badass, dominant, take no prisoners, strong yet sometimes vulnerable women. Mm-hmm. It's Beyonce and it's Serena, so it was dope to see them in the in the video together. It made me happy. And I think it was Serena capitalizing on this moment that she had that was building up since I guess Wimbledon. Really, once the calendar slam intrigue uh, switch flipped on after having rusted over for several decades, right. once that happened, she really entered the public consciousness even more. And she's taking advantage of that and in these mainstream ways. I think that's tremendous. It's great for for her. Obviously, I don't think people turn down the chance to be in a Beyonce visual album no (laughs) Uh, no. but you should not turn that down well Um, did you see the thing that ezra koenig of vampire weekend our beloved shared band is like the house band of ncr house band of ncr he is credited on lemonade as his father john misty who i uh adore and have raved about he's credited on it i mean everybody's kind of songwriting or what it for uh kind of yeah i mean like yeah yeah yeah's are also um it's a whole long story there's an article on vulture about how ezra um and father john missy kind of ended up on the album um and it's kind of very circuitous and random but um but it's cool like you know like i appreciate that beyonce reaches outside um and incorporates all this because one of the the the, the key lyrics of one of the songs is a is an old yeah yeah yeah's lyrics from maps but okay. yeah it's pretty cool cool yeah so all that is to say if serena wants to be at the cultural you know vanguard or whatever all power too we we say that i say this you know propping this up because we did Courtney and i were in a conversation with people earlier who saying you know serena should not be twerking on you know she should have more dignity or respect well or and also and the I, other comments of like play tennis yeah. like maybe you yeah. should get back on the tennis court and it's like dudes this was filmed a while ago like she's all right like chill out and, and serena and, has and earned also, the right to do whatever the hell she wants to do 
Also, this was like something that I'm sure took less than, even with the Beyonce meticulousness, I'm sure the whole thing took less than max, including like wardrobe, makeup, whatever, less than five hours. So she has time. It's not like she's devoting herself to this. And at least if you're going to sell yourself or sell your, use your time in a way that's non-court related or not about making you a better tennis player, at least pick like high level projects. This is so much better than someone, you know, being in a, I don't know, like a, you know, I don't know, infomercial for used cars or something. Yeah, no, Nothing. for sure. And and like yeah, I yeah. and like I said, she's earned it. She's earned that right. And I, I just love, you know, that there are now going to be gifts of Serena and Beyonce dancing and twerking and throwing middle fingers up in the air, although it should be noted that Serena doesn't do it. Beyonce oh. does. She kind of throws her hands up in the air, but she doesn't she doesn't actually. Has Serena ever, I'm trying to rack my brain. Has Serena ever given anybody the finger that we know of? Not is that, that I've her seen. Moves? I, don't I don't think, think she is not the one. She is not the one for that. I mean, she has other ways of expressing distance. Most definitely. <laughs> Most definitely. Um, but that is not one of her I've go-to moves. One, no. I don't really think that's a tennis player go-to move. Sperlea's Spur- done it. Um, did she? Just, yeah, Spur- there's, a, I, I have a, there's a photo of Sperlea giving someone the finger. Cool. That was very 90s, you know. It's Sperlea. What are you going to yeah, do? Yeah, Sperlea was kind of known for that's not shock. Um, yeah, I guess it must have been something. It's not. I. It's mostly an American thing, I guess. More an American thing. So it would have to be one of it's them. It's weird though, because that's like one of those gestures I don't think I've done in a really long time, and it was one that like I never really gravitated to. Now that I think about it, like no. in my youth, it just felt like such a weird. Like I'm doing it right now. <laughs> I'm like it just. I don't know. It just doesn't come naturally to me. As Ben knows, I will. I will. There's I, obscene gestures. I'm all about, but like that's just not one of my go-to's. <laughs> yeah, fair, fair. We got um some questions. Here's a fir- here's a first question for us from Footfall Tennis, who asks: Is 2016 the new 2010 for the WTA in terms of crazy results? Thinking along the lines of Rizai and MJMS winning big back then. Those of you who don't know, Arvain Rizai and Maria Jose Martinez Sanchez uh, won Madrid and Rome, respectively. I guess Rome and Madrid was the order that year. I think so. yeah. that's right, yeah. Um, so MGMS and then Rizai and Courtney, you obviously called her MGMT back in those. <laughs> that was a Fourier Deuce era event that happened there. Um, so is this, is this year shaping up that way? Um, and I guess you can look at results like Irani and Carla winning big tournaments in the Middle East. Um, you can look at, I mean, I, I'll, I'll just let you, let you look at it. How do you see it first? I just don't see it as a 2010 situation. Um, not in the slightest, at least not from what we've seen yet. I mean, obviously Rome and Madrid are coming up. So, it, And to be clear, and, and to just wrap around at 2010, Schiavone also won the French that year in that right. season, which was yeah. also out of nowhere. It was, it was out of nowhere. Um, I just, I really looking at this year's results on the top line level. So looking at the biggest tournaments, I don't really see how you can point at any of it and say that it's been random, honestly. I mean, you look at Victoria Azarenka and what she's done, obviously winning uh, the Brisbane International, uh, winning Indian Wells and Miami, former number one, two-time major champion. Are those random wins? I don't necessarily see that. Angelique Kerber winning the Australian Open, uh, obviously shocking. No doubt about it. Do I consider it more random than Schiavone winning the French? No, not necessarily. And then going on to to, to win Stuttgart, uh, a tournament she's already won. Um, you know, other players who have been weirdly dominant, I guess, uh, Sloane Stevens winning Charleston, mm-hmm. you know. It, Her third title. Yeah, third title. Um, yeah. Random. I wouldn't necessarily say that, that she's a random person to win titles. I mean, she's somebody who we thought 
was supposed to win titles and, and, you know, kind of had two years where it wasn't really happening, two or three years where, where she maybe underperformed according to the tennis fandom, uh, not according to her, but according and, to the tennis and the, fandom. But also according to the tennis experts and sure, yeah, no, but totally people fair. thought she'd be doing better than she had. Sure. Right? And, and now she's normalizing. So is it yeah. surprising? I don't know. I mean, the Middle East was definitely a curveball. I don't think that we can we can say that it wasn't uh, with Arani and uh, and Carla, but Carla, you know, again, a player that we think I don't know at least for me, I, I'm not going to speak for anybody else. I think she's very very good. And, and Carla so, made them and Rome Masters finals or not? You know, Masters yeah. I'll call them Masters esque WTA finals well, and and my um, and and was yeah it was very much in the Singapore running until late. Right. So I don't know. I just, I mean, when I look back and like think about that, you know, that uh, spring of Erevan Razai and, and GMT, you know, that was, that was weird. You know, those were genuinely shocking runs. Now, if, uh, and it came at a time when the WTA was wide open and Wozniacki was number one and things like that. Right. It was going to be number one. I, later yeah. That year. I don't know. I just, I, I think this feels very different. I think this feels like parody, but on a top line level of parody as opposed to parody, like, one through 50. I, I, I don't necessarily see one through 50 being more of a talking point this year. I I don't know. I, I see it as more like there is a small handful of players, specifically five, who have been playing incredibly good tennis. And then those players are the ones that have been winning repeatedly or have been making it deep, you know, at tournaments or making finals and things like that. So I don't know. I think that if you have, and those players happen to be like towards the top of the rankings. So Eh, I don't know. I, I I don't see the 2010 thing, but I don't know, Ben. If you disagree, please feel free. Where, where I see it more, and I'm not. I don't have the numbers to back this up, but I see a lot more more random players winning at the smallest to WTA tournaments than we've had in years past. Um, Schiavone, who was way outside the top 100, won um, the Rio Women's Tournament, uh, and just maybe maybe some of this has been because there've been draws that haven't had many top players in them. They've been more wide open. Um, Falcone, Irina Falcone, won uh, in Bogota, and we should give a plug. She's doing her fundraiser for the uh, earthquake victims in her birthplace of Puerto Viejo in Ecuador. So you guys can find information on that. We'll put the, that in the episode. And then this week, uh, Chala Buya Kachai won in her Love. home tournament of Istanbul, who's always been sort of like a cult favorite player and always gets big crowds at um, – qualities of slams where I see her a lot with a lot of Turkish fans turning up everywhere to see her. So it's good to see her get a title in her home country. So that's where I see, and those are like people we haven't seen in WTA finals much lately. Um, obviously Skivoni a long time ago, but those are the sort of players. Um, I think the, the tournament in Taiwan that was ultimately won by Venus had a lot of unlikely players going deep in that tournament as well. Sure, and, you had, were emptier. and you had so that level, I see right. making the, the final in Dubai or Doha. Yeah. Do, Doha. In, in Doha. Um, so yeah, you'll have players who make, about making the final. In, in yeah, Dubai. you'll have players making the runs, but like in terms of the champions on the top line level, I don't see it. I mean, I, I agree with you on the lower level. Yeah, it's happening. I mean, I don't think that Francesca winning Rio, I understand that like her form is not where it is, but we know what she's capable of as a tennis player. So her winning Rio is she's not outside like, top hundred. Yeah, no, saying. fair enough. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I totally get your argument there. I think, Ch I mean, I think Chala was, the, I think that's the biggest shocker to me because going into the Istanbul Cup last week, she had never won a match there in main draw or qualifying at that mm -hmm. tournament. She was 0-7 going in and then she goes and like runs the table. I mean, that 
is pretty shocking and the celebration in Istanbul was kind of amazing. I yeah, know, tell us about that. I don't know if you saw, I'm sure you did not see Ben, but I thought of you the entire time <laughs> because so like between the singles and the doubles final, the doubles final ended up not going because um, Danka Kovinic withdrew. Um, but between the two, there was like this massive concert with like this legendary 70 year old Turkish pop star who Twitter informed me was like the Madonna of Turkey, but bigger because she's like transcended multiple generations because she was like making music in the 60s. So more like the share of Turkey. Yes, she was the share of Turkey because she was up okay. there, super bleach blonde hair, <laughs> wearing a T-shirt that said, I wanted to say like tiny cool or something that on the T-shirt, wearing leather overalls. But like only one strap was connected. So the other one was off very strategically and very fashionable. But she was singing all these songs and everybody in the crowd was like singing along. It was kind of amazing. And I like watched the whole thing. It went on for like an hour, <laughs> like after the end of the the, the ceremony. But, to, uh, you know, Istanbul went nuts uh, when, when Chala won. And um, it was just a chaotic, I think, post-match ceremony in a lot of ways, um, as you and I have both you know, covered tournaments or tournaments oh, Istanbul. in Istanbul. Yeah. It, it was very Istanbulian, um, just incredibly passionate, but the organization was probably a little bit off. <laughs> they, I don't think they really knew what to do <laughs> because yeah. they'd never experienced that before. So, but it was cool. But I thought of you the whole time while I was watching this, this woman perform her heart out. It was amazing. Yeah. It sounds like, I mean, I remember the, Turks for sure knew how to put on a show in Istanbul yes. two years we went there. And I always remember they had a pre uh post draw ceremony concert, I guess the last year it was there. Oh yeah. Um and they had a band that was like really, really enthusiastic who did at least one Eurovision song. They did Doom Tech Tech from two thousand nine, which came in third for Turkey and it <laughs> no um uh fourth. Wait. No, it went first place was Norway and then who got second that year? I okay, fourth. Fourth place, <laughs> 2009, Doom Tech, uh, great track. And so that made me really happy. And so if anything like that was happening on stage uh, for Chala, good for her. Uh, yeah, because tennis is, I mean, like we say, sometimes tennis is very local. And that, that's going to be the biggest tennis story of the year in Turkey. Is oh, that yeah. Chala won this tournament. And so yeah. that's that's just great for this the sport in that country. And not just that, but for her. I mean, that's yeah. a win for a player who, again, she like only just broke the top 100 on Monday. She's kind of set for life now. Yeah, she, that's what I was thinking the whole time. I was like, I was really yeah. happy for her because I'm like, you're set, dude. Like, you can get all of these, like, you know, Turkish endorsements and, you know, get a Turkish Airlines, you know, uh, endorsement or whatever it is. And she's set. And I think that that's like, I don't know, I, that makes me happy for a player that that is kind of in that rankings range to be able to have the week of her life. And that's tennis, right? I mean, if you yeah. can have one week, the best one week of your life or the best two weeks of your life. Uh, you can set yourself up for the rest of the rest of your 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 gig. So yeah, good on no, it. I'll give a plug also to a piece a couple weeks ago in the New York Times by Ravi Uba about Taliana Pereira. Yep, which went into her uh, backstory and her success at the Brazilian just winning the tournament in Brazil um, and how much that affected her life. I mean, I mean, people have to realize that with these players that uh, for someone like a Falcone too, winning winning that first title, um, it's a huge deal for these players, and uh, that's one of the good reasons why. I think it's a great thing. There are as many WTA tournaments as there are. And I'm why even if they don't make calendar sense or something, you know, if they don't fit in the streamline, oh, why are you in South America in April or something? More tournaments the merrier, I say, for these sort of opportunities for players to 
get work and do good things. Also, yeah, we should mention, it's... in terms of locals, Laura Siegemund, we haven't mentioned. Oh, of course. Briefly, but she made out Born of nowhere. Born in Filderstadt, was... lives in Stuttgart. Yeah, won the Stuttgart run. final as a qualifier. Yeah. Uh, so that's pretty pretty remarkable. She was a lot of fun when I talked to her for the first time in Charleston. Um, where She also did well. Uh, so she's having a great year. Yeah. And I know she's a very fun, very frank, not a young player, not, a, not like a young gun or a rising star, as they say in WTA, um, but someone who I think comes at this with... Uh, has come to success with a lot more yeah, perspective under her belt than a lot of players. So she's just a very uh, enlightening and, and fun person to, to get to talk to. And it's cool that she's becoming more rankings relevant now with these big results. Yeah, no, she, she kind of, you know, in different ways, I, but I would put her into that category of, you know, the, the Petkoviches, the, the Bachinskis, um, people who, you know, for yeah. whatever reason, you know, she's very smart. She took time away from the sport. She comes now back to the sport because she's, you know, she has a, there's a Bachinski-esque about, about her. And she took time away to write a thesis about what? Choking in professional sports. Which is amazing. Which is amazing. And I can't wait to talk to her about it more uh, when I see her in Madrid. But, um, yeah, I mean, in that way, I think it, it's been pretty great. And I, and I do think that the players who have been making these runs – you know, in deep, they're all just kind of great stories. I mean, even if you, you, I, sorry, I have to say the name once again, because it's a podcast and it's not right if I don't say the name, but, you know, even if you go back to a Kasatkina or you go to uh, Ostapenko or... <laughs> For some reason, I didn't think, see Ostapenko. <laughs> like, who's she going to talk about here? Wait, who? What? Who? Oh, uh, no. Dasha. But yeah, I mean, the, you know, players who are doing well, you know, Zheng Shuai. Um, oh, yeah. You know, players who are making these runs, who are incredibly multi-layered and 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 interesting so i think that's been that's been pretty fun but but we'll see i mean it, it's weird because it feels like like what is today april 26th. 25th so it's about you know four months into the season which isn't much we've only had one major right but it feels like we've been in the season for a really long time at least it does for me so it's weird to think about like how much the landscape will continue to change uh, you know, over the next, like, especially like six months. There's, yeah, there's three slams and a Olympics left on the table. Um, so, and also I just do, as a results roundup, I should mention also that Verdasco won in Bucharest this week and for, uh, Rafael Nadal continued his winning streak into Barcelona, um, which feels noteworthy, beating Nishikori 6-4, 7-5 in the final. Um, Nadal off to a vintage Nadal start, winning Monte Carlo and Barcelona, like the olden days. And shout out to the Bryan brothers um, who won Barcelona after not having a great 18 months or so on court there, that's a big title for them as they get ready to, and they also had won Houston. So having a good clay season um, as they get ready to try to defend their gold medal later this year. Um, next question. Sure. Oh, speaking of Kane, let's go to him. Uh, he made the final of Barcelona, lost to Rafael Nadal. We had a question from the Kane Shikori inspired Twitter handle, Nisha Carey, who asks us, and Carey asks us, what can Kay do? to actually beat the big guys consistently and win Masters titles and slams. Is it time for Chang, his coach, Michael Chang, to go? Courtney, I'll let you handle this one first. What do you think about the state, the current state of Kenny Shikori, and is it uh, good enough? I mean, I think that it's a little ridiculous that we're, you know, talking about a potential kind of like panic button with Kenny Shikori when I'm looking at his results his recent results, quarterfinals, Indian Wells, final Miami, final Barcelona. And in those situations, he's lost twice to Rafael Nadal and once to Novak Djokovic. Like, uh -huh. you know, and then like what? He lost in, in, in Davis Cup to Andy Murray. 
Um, his last bad loss would have been to Sam Query in Acapulco in February. Um, and that came off of, you know, winning Memphis, um, uh, the t- tournament that he weirdly plays well with. And then and Query, before, and Query had just won Delray and was playing well. And before that, made the quarterfinals of the Australian Open, losing to Novak Djokovic. Like, this is not a guy who's losing terrible matches. Yeah. Or, you know, and giving up you know, bad beats. He's putting himself into a, uh, a situation where he gets the opportunity to turn these, you know, little head to heads around. And um, so I don't think that there's much to, at this point for me, um, to panic about with Kay. And I definitely wouldn't say that, oh, it's time for, for Michael Chang to go. I think that, you know, it is one of those situations where you do have to stop and you do have to say he's competing alongside, you know, players who are like, some of the greatest of all time and and you just have to tip your cap sometime and and wait for it um you know but otherwise i think that he has been doing what he needs to do um to set himself up for success like in miami he only lost one set going into the final which we always talk about with k like you can't get yourself bogged down into these physical you know matches early in the tournament because it catches up to you physically at the end that wasn't the case he dropped one set Came up against Novak Djokovic. Novak Djokovic is who he is. Barcelona goes into the final. Didn't lose a set all week. Beats Benoit Paire, Alexander Dolgopolov, Jeremy Chardy. Like, good clay quarters. Mm-hmm. And then he loses 6-4-7-5 to Rafa, which is a pretty tight scoreline. So I don't I mean, I think that he's doing everything the right way. Um, does he need to kind of level up? Possibly. But, I mean, think about kind of what we're asking it is it is a you lot know? <laughs> and, you know we definitely are asking a lot for sure and he said you know we talk about this generation how nobody younger has been winning masters titles and that's <laughs> evidence that whether you think it reflects badly on king shikori or ex- explains this roadblock he's run into you can take it either way you want it is true that Mishikori hasn't had the sort of breakthroughs continuing after his u.s open breakthrough i'm just looking at his tennis abstract page right now against the top five and since those uh, two top five wins he had at the u.s open that year against Vavrinka and Djokovic, he's lost 14 straight against top five guys, um, which is not great that for a player who's been, who's been in the top 10 that whole time. You'd expect better than 14 straight losses. So does he, does he, could he use a few more big scalps in this clay season and clay's a good surface for him? Uh, sure. I, I, there's no arguing that. If he wanted to, you know, people get mad when Murray's in the big, you know, four, saying, oh, he's not really big four, he's only one, two, blah, blah, blah. If he wanted to include, like, uh, Nisha Corey in, like, a big six, he's certainly in there. He doesn't lose people below him either. He's just kind of not the alpha of that big six on any level. So he's holding his own. He's not slipping. Um, but could he afford to poke a few more holes in the in the ceiling above him with a broom handle or something? Yeah, probably at this point. Just It would be a, a one or two against uh, a Nadal on clay. I think it's gettable, even with Nadal on clay this year. Um, it was four and five in the in the Barcelona final, which is like Nadal's best tournament. It's not bad. Um, Murray, he can. I would hope he could beat on clay. I would think he could beat on clay. Djokovic, maybe more of a toss up. Federer this year, absolutely. That's his best matchup of the big of the big four. It's Federer for Nishikori. So why not? I think he could. I think he absolutely could set his goals at making with the right draw, like a semi at the French. I think that's totally within range. Sure. And results like that should be more what he's aiming for. He talked. I think he talked. I talked to him about goals for the year in Brisbane where he was this year and he said it was to win a Masters or to make another slam final which I thought was good yeah I mean like I, I don't think back when he was I think like number 
11 or like 12 in the world. I remember him talking about not wanting to rush getting to the top 10. I mean, like, come on, dude. Like, you're like right there. Just yeah, but ever the since that U.S. Open run, things have really changed for him mentally, yeah. I think. And and I think yeah. that Kaney Shikori, having spoken to him many times, like, you know, over the, the course of the last few years, he is not one who is shy about his ambition. Like, I understand the comment, you know, oh, you know, I'm trying to, you know, make the top 10 whenever or whatever. I understand that that may sound like it, but I, he always... It was just funny because he was at 11, I think, when he said Yeah, that. I mean, I, I just have always put him in the same category as kind of a lean on inter- when you look at like the Asian players who have broken through, obviously it is K and Lina recently as being consistent, mm-hmm. you know, what top, top 10, top five players. Um, and what I always saw as being a very common thread between the two is that they had this very un-Asian ambitious streak. Like they, they weren't content with just being, you know, whatever, and just doing the hard work and whatever my ranking is, is what my ranking is or whatever. Like they very much believed that they could be at the top or that they could challenge for majors, um, win big tournaments, get their rankings up and things like that, which is not a common mindset among most of the Asian players. So I'm just curious why, why you think that, why you think that ambition um, is not typical for Asian players? Um, it's not typical for Asians. <laughs> it's a cultural thing. We are taught you know, not to, um, to not be the bird that sticks out. I mean, I think that that was why, you know, Lee Na's retirement letter meant, I think so much. And it even hit me a little bit is, is that encouragement of like, you are supposed to, you are supposed to stand out. But when you look at it broadly, you talk about China and you, and you look at like Japan, right. As the two kind of major Asian countries, Mm -hmm. these are societies where standing out is not good in any way, shape or form any way, shape or form. Mm -hmm. So that culture bleeds into sport in a lot of ways. And especially in an individual sport like this, where you can kind of train, you know, outside of, of, of China and Japan. And and obviously they want to win gold medals and things like that at the Olympics, but individual achievement, um, at, and forsaking a little bit of your community is like a death knell. Like you were just taught not to do that. Um, and so, and you're also taught very much so, and it's part of Asian culture, which is that you are supposed to respect your elders. And that does sometimes, I remember used to think, I used to think, especially with Kay, that he had too much respect when he took the court against the big five and kind of would like try, but kind of take his beating. I actually don't think that anymore. Um, um, and that really changed right around the time of the U.S. Open, even a little bit before then, uh, when he had his run. But there are just cultural things that are just like if you're Asian, I don't know, you, listeners, if you're Asian, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Like, mm-hmm. and so, um, yeah, it's it's a different level of ambition. You're supposed to be good at what you do, but you're supposed to kind of know your place. And those two, in particular, Lena and Kani Shikori, I think, are quite good at balancing that kind of inbred cultural. Um, um, Ethos. Value, yeah, ethos, value set, while also striving to be the best. Um, I think that they've they've done a good job. But, you know, when you're constantly trying to balance it, there are going to be times where, like, the sliding scale slides one way or the other too much. But, uh, but yeah, so I, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm less, I, I'm not a panic button on keg person. Can I ask a possibly ridiculous question about Asians? Sure. Is this desire not to, to, to blend in and not stand out the reason why all the K-pop bands have, like, 13 people? <laughs> That's just like a z a zebra no, mentality like enough of us okay. won't be able to take us out no that's just k-pop and k-pop is audacious and over the top 
and constantly trying to innovate. So it's kind of like, oh, boy bands are supposed to have five. What if we have eight? Oh, I see you have eight. Well, yeah, well, we have 15. Like, so that's <laughs> just that's just K-pop innovation. I think that that's specific to okay. K-pop. Okay. Um, but that's a very good question. And I'm glad that you asked it. Thank you. Last question. We got some good questions for our listeners as well. The last one we'll go into is from Dr. Scholes. Uh, who asks us, does Novak have to win Madrid and or Rome to shut the door he's left ajar uh, for something, say a bull, to come charging through? So moving back to Rafa, where we started the show, Novak, as we talked about with Carol Bouchard on the show last week, obviously lost first round in Monte Carlo, which left an opening for Nadal to come through that tournament fairly cleanly, and he did so. And then he also, I guess, eight tough matches on the way, but he did win it. Um, and then he won Barcelona as well. He has a lot of momentum uh, Corny, does it? Is this Madrid tournament? We're going to next week a big showdown, a meaningful test, especially if these two play each other. Is it going to be super important? Not really. Yeah. Um, I don't read too much into Madrid ever, with all due respect to the tournament. That's true. It's um, not. It is not, not a, a predictor. Right. It's not a good indicator for success in Paris. I think that the end of the line. It's, Novak doesn't have to win Madrid and Rome. Novak needs to win the French Open. Um, that's the goal and, and that's the focus. So, you know, Madrid, hopefully, you know, he can do what he does. And if he wins it, great. That's, that's fantastic. If he goes head to head against Rafa, great. Um, I think Rome is, is more of an indicator. Um, and I think that, that probably, yeah, I mean, if they face each other head to head, then he needs to win that match specifically in Rome. If they don't face each other head to head and he like somehow suffers some semifinal loss to a resurgent and amazing Kaini Shikori, um, I don't know. Fine. You get more time to rest and prepare for Paris. Um, I, I think the goal is Paris and I just don't really see that he needs to like necessarily be focused on Rafa right now. I, I think if they do meet in Madrid, it will be a high stakes match for, you know, power rankings and alpha mailed them and all the other things that we like. It'll to be a matter. bigger deal for Rafa than it will be for Novak. That's for sure. In my opinion. I think it's big for both. I mean, I think that, oh. I think that Rafa is emerging as the best challenger to Djokovic right now um, in terms of definitely the French Open. Yeah, but like um, what I think that, but in saying that to me is like, if I'm Novak and I, and I have a little bit of swag in me, um, I'm thinking, I'm thinking like, haha, like you're the king of clay and yet you have to beat me to prove that you're the king of clay. No, this match means more to you than it does to me because I am still the presumptive favorite. That's fair. So that's why I think of it mentally as being more of a... But, I, but wouldn't that favorite status change, though, if he lost that match? Wouldn't Rafa In Madrid, I don't think so. Favorite? In Rome, maybe. But yeah, I just I don't, don't think so. In the narrative would get carried away. But you're, I think you're right from an actual, like, in, informed <laughs> point of view. <laughs> in I'm actually... Saying, no, but I'm just saying <laughs> yes, that I, I don't think what you mean, that... Like the the you know, runaway the train of the narrative. The common narrative yes, would be absolutely. that Rafa is king again. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yes. and Novak just still can't close out the French. Right, and oh, the so. demons and, you know, all that sort of stuff. I mean, like, yes, if I agree with that, that if Novak and Rafa go head-to-head over the next couple weeks in Madrid and Rome and Novak doesn't win that, yes, the the narrative train will be leaving, you know, Belgrade and it will be heading full steam towards, you know, Barcelona and then you hit on a ferry and you go to Mallorca. I was going to say, I'm glad, I'm glad that geographically you did not try to make a straight train to Mallorca because this just wouldn't work. Chill out, geography nerd. I get that you're going to be on Jeopardy and all, <laughs> you know, whatever. Um, yeah, so, it, you know, the storylines will be out of control. So I kind of don't want that to happen because 
there's a part of me that just wants Rafa to be playing really good for Novak to still be considered the presumptive favorite in Paris. And then let's see how that all shakes out. But if all of the discussion shifts back towards Rafa, I'm not entirely sure that's great for both guys. I think that okay. Rafa is going to be a good chaser. I think that he'll he'll like to have that kind of like challenge in front of him. Novak obviously already has the challenge of trying to win the thing. I think that that would be much more, I don't know, a much more interesting story or narrative or 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 contrast than Rafa's back. Everybody else sucks. Eh, yeah, eh, not not really down with that. Fair enough. I, what I am down with is this episode. Thank you guys for listening. Episode one fifty one of No Challenges Remaining. If you want to follow along with us when you're not listening, you can do so by liking us on Facebook, facebook.com slash NCR podcast. You can also follow us on Twitter at NCR underscore tennis. You can send us questions for upcoming shows. We might have some time to do some questions in the coming weeks, although we'll be at a lot of tournaments, but we'll see. No challenges remaining at gmail.com is the place to do that. If you want us to get episodes automatically, which you should, uh, subscribe to us on iTunes. Or, and leave us reviews while you're on iTunes. But any podcast app can get you new episodes of the show delivered automatically to your phone or whatever else you use to listen and makes life easier. And you don't have to re- rely on our social media posts, which you might miss sometimes. So that's a cool thing to do. Uh, the executive producers of No Challenges Remaining are Francisco Resendez of TennisBalls.com and Tal Woolley. Corny, you got rants, raves, things. Sure. Uh, I'm just going to quickly kind of ish as quickly as Courtney is able to do things because I know that I'm super wordy and it's annoying, but uh, rave about two things. First thing is I'm kind of late to the game on this, but um, the album by Torres called Sprinter is phenomenal. Can you spell Torres? Mm T-O-R-R-E-S. She is not Spanish. Um, But uh, but I only just got around to to listening to it, um, even though it came out, I think, last year. It is. It totally blew me away. If you like kind of like mid aughts PJ Harvey, it's kind of like that sort of dark, uh, gritty, grimy like guitar rock um, with great songwriting and everything. So I would highly recommend that album. Um, I'm in love with it. I'll be listening to it a lot uh, on this upcoming road trip uh, or trip. Uh, not so much roads, but uh, <laughs> so that's one. The second thing that I will read about that just happened today, and it was super impromptu. I had been, I just figured out how to like watch YouTube on a TV. Oh. <laughs> um, I don't know why I'm so slow. <laughs> so stupid. But you'd think that I'd be like technologically savvy enough to like set this up, but I just didn't. You have a pretty good tech setup at your house I, and everything with I that projector pretty, screen and everything. Well, it's not even that. I have a freaking PlayStation and an Xbox, like both of which have YouTube on it. Like I could have just, it just never occurred to me. But then this weekend, because NWSL games were going, I was like, oh, I wonder if I could put it on. I did, and it was good. It looked great. But anyway, so like last night, I was on, um, and I was trying to put together this playlist of like full U.S. women's soccer matches so that I just had it on YouTube that I could just put soccer games on the background. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't find what I would argue to be the greatest women's soccer match of all time, which is USA versus Canada semifinals at the London Olympics in 2012. And it used to be there, and it's not anymore. It used to be posted on the official Olympics channel. Yeah, they used to have full Olympic tennis matches, too. Exactly, and it's just not there. And it was driving me nuts. I was on Twitter, and I was talking to my women's soccer buddies uh, at Crypto Banana, Nikita, and Ange uh, at For All Surfaces. And um, uh, Crypto Banana found the match, 
And so we kind of were like, hey, do you guys want to just like watch it? Like, let's queue it up at the same time. And we'll just like live tweet it like together of just kind of like commenting back and forth. And it'd been a long time since I'd watched the match and I'd actually never seen the match like with another person. So all of the commentary and the feelings I have of it are so internal in my head. So it was actually really fun this evening. The three of us were like sitting at our laptops watching the match and kind of like just popping off like we were at a sports bar watching this match, pretending that it was the first time that we were watching it. Um, and it was just a really fun thing. And and, and we're going to do it again um, with other uh, U.S. women's soccer matches. But it was like one of those things where I was like, I would like to do that with tennis matches. Just like pick a match and be like, hey, guys, so I'm going to watch this match. It's on YouTube. If you want to watch it, great. I'm going to start playing it at three o'clock Pacific time, hit play, and let's just chat about it. And um, yeah. I don't know. There's a part of me that thinks that like I might do that a little bit more on my downtime. So, it almost sounds like an NCR opportunity. An I got to say, I'm, I'm thinking, I'm thinking like, yeah, we could do like a, like a live radio, like, oh, we've thing, always like a simulcast. That. Yeah. We've always yeah. talked about that, about like, like, you know, us watching a match and like talking about it the way that you and I sit and watch tennis matches and talk. Right. Um, but yeah, it, it was really fun and it was like a nice little piece of community. And I think that when you you are a, a hardcore fan of very niche sports, like those little things, like that's a, a pretty good way of um, not feeling like you're watching something by yourself and no one else cares, you know, and, and just to be around people who are also as passionate about it. It was fun. And uh, so thank you, Crypto Banana. And thank you for all surfaces. That was a really fun time. And uh, yeah. It's in. Alex Morgan has done it. Great. One of the greatest Woso calls of ever, of all time. It was wonderful. I was wondering how you pronounce that Woso. I thought that was it, but like the actual words are pronounced like we. and and so, Wissaw. Well, yeah. I've never actually heard somebody say it out loud. Um, that's just how I say it in my head. Woso. Woso makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So it was it was fun and it was fun ripping on Canada for two hours. It was it was a good time. Tremendous. Okay. For my rant rate, I actually have a three-pronged thing that's already mentioned. Um, I will be on Jeopardy this week. I, I taped uh, – I'll go more into the story of how it all went and everything once uh, results and stuff are known. It's hard for me to divorce the two topics, but it taped back in uh, March on the ver- on the eve of Indie Wells. And it's airing this Thursday. I will be on on April 28th. Check your local listings. And if you're international, hopefully we'll have somebody try to upload it somewhere online so people can see it non-live uh so that is public service announcement there the other announcement is which is i guess my rave part of this is thank you guys for your early ncr vision submissions uh the ncr vision song contest will be coming up soon this spring probably timed around the real eurovision which is during rome this year i've gotten a lot of good suggestions and i've just done my own digging as well there's a lot more music about tennis out there than i thought there was um the quality ranges considerably (laughs) <laughs> um, from high to low and from just like sort of creativeness to not and from ones that are just like songs about I think this girl is hot to things that are much more interesting and comp- contemplative I like all sides of that spectrum obviously and Eurovision the muse for this contest is obviously has a range of quality and substantiveness and you know um, uh, lustiness as well about it so all that is cool anytime and people who wanted to send their own songs in. If you want to write a composition and send it in, I realize there's not much time left to do it, but that'd be great if you want to. Um, you can send that to us just on our email or get in touch with how to send the song. We'll put a deadline for that uh, in the middle of Madrid, let's say, 
May 5th. So Cinco de Mayo will be the Eurovision or NCR NCR vision deadline for songs you want to send in. So we're going to try to format the show and get everything in order and set it all up to be spiffy. Um, maybe do some green room interviews or something cool like that. We'll see how it goes. Um, and then my rant, uh, it was game seven of the Blackhawks blues series, which close to wrapped up, not totally wrapped hockey. up hockey, hockey, uh, and, and NHL playoffs. And uh, Chicago won. No, sorry. Chicago lost. Uh, and St. Louis won, which was unexpected. But what was expected was within about a minute of the resulting final, I had seen three different Crying Jordan, crying Jordan memes about this. Ugh. I had seen one where Crying Jordan was made to look like the Blackhawks logo with the feathers on his head, which was actually sort of interesting. Um, one where he was the puck. Someone photoshopped his head onto the puck that was bouncing around the uh, goal line. And when the Hawks, I forget which player, hit both posts pretty late in the game with a chance to tie it, just hard to do, bad luck. And then one where Patrick Kane's uh, face was pasted over with Jordan. That was a video, so it like, took a lot of effort. And all this is to say that this is such a waste of time and that I am so sick <laughs> of this crying Jordan yes. thing, which I never liked in the first place. I never thought it was that funny. And there's just a lot of like creative energy being put into this thing that I just don't think is anything. I'm just, I, I don't get it. Like, I don't, I don't think the photo is that iconic that it deserves this ridiculous amount of treatment and rolling out and putting on everything. People are like, I, I don't, I don't even know what to compare it to, but it's like, since it's just like early internet memeing in the worst. It's just like, it feels like Rick rolling or something at this point. It's really, really stale. And I just want it to go away. I don't get it, and I never liked it. I agree. That's my thought on that. Yeah, I don't. I was, I was, I was, I wasn't sure what you would think about it. I yeah, just, no, I, I've, I've never Twitter been. Seems like so enamored with the crying Jordan. It's just like ugh. I've never been about it. That being said, I think it's been well documented that I'm not really a basketball fan. So I don't even think most people doing it are basketball fans. So I think they just are I more think like sports people, fans. though. Yeah, maybe. I, I don't know. I mean, it, it's you know, it's it's the one. American sport that that I have a bit of a blind spot too, so I don't have a blind spot. I I don't have like a. You're well aware of who Michael Jordan. No, I know, but I don't have any sort of like emotional connection to where I think that it's like all that hilarious. Like I I don't know if there's like a broader story or if people just think it's funny that Jordan was crying. I don't know. I I, I genuinely it's a meme that kind of goes over my head uh, a little bit. Um, but it does seem like it's been going on for a long time now, and it's probably time to move on. I would think so. So we, with that, we'll move on uh, from this show. Thank you guys for listening. We will play you out now. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.